Let us now turn to the Word of God, to the chapter read in the book of the Revelation, Revelation chapter 11. And uh, we may read from the beginning of the chapter. Indeed, we may read from the last verse of the chapter 10. Verse 11 of chapter 10, he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise, and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out and measure it not. For it is given unto the Gentiles, and the holy city shall they tread under foot forty and two months. And I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth, and so on. Now the last Lord's Day that we were in the book of the Revelation, we concentrated particularly upon the first verse of this chapter 11, where the great angel of the covenant is addressing uh, John to whom he has given uh, this little book that he is to eat so that the book becomes part of himself and he becomes bound up with that book. After he is given the book, he is then given a reed a measuring reed, a measuring rod, and he is told that he is to rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and them that worship therein. And this undoubtedly is what John does in obedience. But he is given very precise instructions as to what he is to measure. And uh, we concentrated on his measuring of the temple, his measuring of the altar, his measuring or numbering of the true people of God. And he is instructed that he is to leave out or cast out the... uh, the outer court that was given, he says, to the Gentiles. Now, you have to understand that in the temple, the material temple, there was the court of the Gentiles, and they were to come to be instructed in that court, but they could not venture beyond it. They were kept separate from the true Jewish worshippers. There was also the court of the woman uh, to which they were confined. 
Uh, but here, John is told, leave out the outer court because that is given to the Gentiles. Let them stay there. And the holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. And it isn't that they shall simply tread the court that is given to the Gentiles. They shall tread the very city itself. So measure particularly the inner court, the holy place, the holy of holies of the uh, temple. Now John, of course, could not measure the material temple because in AD 70 it was destroyed. And Jesus himself had said that that house was to be left desolate. He had abandoned it and forsaken it because he purposed to build another temple, the spiritual temple of which we spoke, the temple that Paul referred to and Peter referred to, consisting of living stones, a living spiritual temple. Jesus, or Paul rather, said to the Corinthians, they were the temple of God. When Paul was writing to the Ephesians, he said Jews and Gentiles alike were brought in to be part of that glorious temple. Now, to understand what is going on, there are certain principles of interpretation we must constantly apply and keep in mind if we are to understand what really John is conveying to us. And we must keep in mind to whom this epistle, this apocalyptic epistle or letter is written. John is given very clear instructions. He does not have to question what it is all about. Back in the chapter 1, and we need to keep this in mind, <clears throat> in verse 10 of Revelation 1, John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and heard behind me a great voice of a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest. Now, there are some who foolishly imagine to themselves that what John was to write was these seven messages to the seven churches conveying to them their spiritual condition as it was known by the head of the church, Christ himself. But what John is told to do is write in a book and send it unto the seven churches which are in Asia. What is he to write and send? Not merely their spiritual condition, but what thou seest. What thou seest. All the visions that John has given are to be sent to the seven churches in Asia, whatever their condition. 
they are to be considering their future. Whatever their present condition was, they were to be considering what lay ahead of them, what lay ahead of the church in days that were to come. And after John is written down, what he is told about the seven churches to send that, in chapter 4, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And now John is raised above the earthly scene and the condition of the seven churches in the earth, and he is taken into heaven now to view things from a completely new level altogether. He sees things as they appear on earth. Now he is to see the things as they appear from heaven's vantage point. And the first thing that he, of course, is confronted with, as we've noted in the past, is the throne. The focus is upon the throne, heaven's throne. Now, we're not going to go over uh, the ground that we've covered, but we have to keep this in mind if we're to understand later events. And what is it that John is to come up to see? Verse 1 of chapter 4. Come up hither, I will show thee. These are the things you're going to see. These are the things, therefore, you're to write to the seven churches. What I'm going to show you. What will I show you? Things which must be hereafter. They haven't happened yet. But they're certainly going to happen. They are very certain. They're very sure. And the churches need to be aware of what will confront them. But not just the seven churches in Asia. Because over and over it's repeated throughout the chapters 2 and 3. He that hath an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit said unto the churches. So we are to pay attention to everything that John writes to the churches. Now, in order to understand the real significance and the real meaning of what he writes, of the things that must certainly come to pass, We have to remember this, that there is a period of time before the church in the future, from the time that John writes, right to the end of the world. The things that must be hereafter, the things that are going to happen in the future. Now the problem is, if we do not interpret that time period correctly, we're going to wander around in a theological maze and in an eschatological maze as well. 
Now, to try and illustrate the point that we need to understand, if we were to take one year, one year in the history of Grafton, and it would be one year with all kinds of things going on, events taking place throughout the months of that year. And we go to six people. And we ask them, now, can you tell me what happened in 1980? And they would scratch their head and they would say, well, ah, yeah, that's... That happened in 1980, and they referred to some event. That's good. Now we've got that information. That happened. We write that down. And we record it. That happened in 1980. Then we go to someone else, and we ask them the same question. And they, 1980, ah, yeah, I remember 1980, such and such a thing happened. Well, that's not what the first person said. But we write it down and we record it because it happened just the same. It happened at the same time in the same year that other events took place. One does not contradict the other. One does not rule out the accuracy and the validity of the other. We go to a third person. We say, could you tell me what happened in 1980 in Grafton? And they come up with some other event. And it happened, but it doesn't contradict in reality the other events. These events all happen and they're all covered in that time period. We can't say, well, because the first person said this is what happened, what the second person said didn't happen. It all happened at the same time or over the same period. Now, this is how we need to understand when we're going through this book that because we read of a certain event taking place during a certain period, that everything else has to follow it. We go back again over the same period and discover something else was happening at the same time. And it is very important that we understand that. Now here... In the chapter 11, we have, as it were, an interlude in between the sounding of trumpets. We come to verse 21 of chapter 9, and then we have this interlude, and we begin again, verse 14 of chapter 11, the second woe is past, And behold, the third woe cometh quickly. And then we move in verse 15 into the uh, time uh, of woe resulting from the uh, 
the blowing of the uh, seventh angel's trumpet. Why is John doing this? Because he's drawing our attention to different happenings and activities that were taking place during the same period of time. Now go back to chapter 11, verse uh, 1, the measuring of the temple of the Lord, and we drew attention to the other prophets who'd been told to measure the temple in past days. And this is another principle I will always adhere to. Scripture interprets Scripture. And that's what John did. John wasn't told on every occasion what he saw, what it actually meant. But the scripture interpreted for him. Sometimes the angel would tell him what it meant. On other occasions, he would have to go back to the scriptures. And he would have to go back to find the vision formerly in the scriptures in order to understand it and to understand what was happening. Now, if you go back to the prophecy of Ezekiel uh, just momentarily in the chapter 40 and up to chapter 43, you have the prophet Ezekiel being told to measure the temple in his day, no doubt for a different reason. But in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, we read verse 10, just for the sake of time, these few verses. Thou, son of man, show the house of Israel, uh, show the house to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. And if they be ashamed... Of all that they have done, show them the form of the house, and the fashion thereof, and the goings out thereof, and the comings in thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and all the forms thereof, and all the laws thereof, and write it in their sight, that they may keep the whole form thereof, and all the ordinances thereof, and do them. This is the law of the house upon the top of the mountain, the whole limit thereof, round about, shall be most holy. Behold, this is the law of the house. Now, what was Ezekiel to do? He was to remind Israel of what the house of God ought to be Spiritually, he was to remind them of what they'd lost sight of and what they'd forgotten, and he was to restore the knowledge of God's pattern for the house, renewing the knowledge of the ordinances of the house, 
the forms of the worship of the house. Show them this for what reason? Verse 10, show the house to the house of Israel that they may be ashamed. Show it to them that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. That is what Ezekiel is to do. There needs to be reformation. And he is to bring back to them the knowledge of what the house of God ought to be, what the worship of God should be, what the real ordinances are of that house, the very forms of going out and coming in, their very approach to the house of God. They're, they, these things were all important. God show these to Israel that they will become ashamed because things have changed and deteriorated and a great apostasy has taken place. They need a reformation. So when John is told, measure the house, why would he be told to do this and leave out the court of the Gentiles? Don't measure that. Concentrate on measuring the inner court, not where the Gentiles, the ungodly are, but where the true saints are, the true worshippers of God. And then he tells us this. And this is what he's to write to the seven churches. This is what if we've got an ear, we are to hear what the Spirit said to the churches. The holy city shall they tread underfoot forty and two months. Now, I remember what we said about 1980 a year, a time period. And notice how this time period reappears. They shall tread underfoot forty and two months. You see this period again in the uh, chapter 13, verse 4. We shall refer to this again. They worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. And they worship the beast saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is evil to make war with him? There was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, the same period of time. Now you will notice, going back then to chapter 11, that God says, or the angel said, the angel of the covenant, I will give power unto my two witnesses. And what shall they do? They shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days. The same time period. 
Then if you go over to chapter 12, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where uh, she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there, what? A thousand two hundred and three score days. The same time period as the two witnesses prophecy. Then go down to verse 14 where this same woman of chapter 12 where this same woman again is referred to. We're not trying to uh, uh, interpret presently who the woman is. Verse 14, to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place where she has nourished, note, for a time and times and half a time from the face of the serpent. Now you can see that the two time periods are exactly the same, only they are referred to in different terms. Back up in verse 6, the woman fled to a place <coughs> prepared by God for her, and there she's fed for a thousand two hundred and three score days, or three and a half years, or uh, forty and two months. Verse 14, the same woman is nourished in the same wilderness, but this time it says, for a time and times and half a time. Uh, time was a year, times was two years, half a time was half a year, three and a half years. The time period is the same. Forty-two months or one thousand two hundred and three score days or three and a half years. Now when John would want to interpret these things, what would he do? Scripture would interpret Scripture. So we would go back to Daniel. And there he would find in chapter 7, chapter 12 of Daniel, reference to the same time period a time and times and half a time, the same period of persecution for the church. Now then, what is the significance of this time period? Well, you look through the book of Revelation and what do you find? The repetition of certain numbers 7, 12, 3, and so on. You've heard me refer to the fact in the Hebrew mind, 7 is the number of completion, the number of perfection, of completeness and wholeness. What is the significance of three and a half? It is the half of 7. It is the number of uh, indefiniteness. It is far from completeness and perfection. It is only half 
of the uh, seven. So these periods are important. Now what is happening? I will give power unto my two witnesses. Now if uh, you look at all the various commentators making reference to this chapter, one of the things that repeatedly you hear is it's the most difficult chapter in the Word of God to interpret. And we would not underestimate the difficulties. But if we follow the principles of Scripture interpreting Scripture, then we should be able to discover from the clearer parts of Scripture the meaning as the Westminster Divine said, of the parts that are not so clear. You will have men say, well, these two witnesses, that's Moses and Elijah. Some will say that's the Old and the New Testaments. And some will say, ah, it is uh, the... Law and Gospel. The Scripture itself, the angel himself, as well as the Word of God, tells us something that seems to be largely ignored. Verse 4, these are. You wonder what those words are actually there for sometimes. These are. John doesn't have to scratch his head and wish, I just wish the angel had told me who they are. Instead of leaving me to try and search and speculate and find out, what does he say? These are. So John will be able to identify these witnesses. The second thing we need to note is what uh, the angel says, uh, I will give power unto my two witnesses. Why is it that there are just Two witnesses like Moses and Elijah or the uh, law and the gospel or whatever, whenever there are so many numbers referred to repeatedly throughout the book of the Revelation. It is one of the things that very often interpreters, they read of a thousand years, the millennium, and then they say that means literally one thousand years. Seven doesn't mean literally seven. Three doesn't mean literally three all the time, or uh, 124 or whatever, but a thousand, we always take that literally. Two, will we better take that literally as well? 
what does the angel say? I will give power unto my two witnesses. And these are, these are my two witnesses. The two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of all the earth. Now, before going over to Zechariah, let's go over to chapter 13. Just for a moment, that we might be able to bring together a full picture of what is happening. Chapter 13, verse 1, John says, I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea. Now who has his foot upon the sea and upon the land? Remember the mighty angel of the covenant. He has the the little book in his hand. Out of that sea over which he has complete control and power rises this beast. And then John describes what he's like. Verse 2, the beast which I saw was like unto a leopard, and his feet were as the feet of a bear, and his mouth as the mouth of a lion, and listen. And the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Now note those things. The dragon... Who is he? Go back to chapter 12, verse 7. There was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon called the devil and Satan which deceived the whole world, was cast out into the earth, and so on. Notice what happens here. And the dragon, verse 2 at the end of it, and the dragon gave him his power and his seat and great authority. Remember what John sees when we go back to chapter 4. He sees the throne. He sees the exalted Christ, the Lamb in the midst of the throne. What did he say to his disciples before he left them? All power is given unto me who gave it to him, his Father. All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore into all the world and preach the gospel. And then what did he say to them in the very first chapter of Acts when he's leaving them? What did he tell them they would be? Uh, Chapter 1 of Acts, verse 8. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and so on. 
Now look at the picture. God has exalted his son, given him all power, placed him upon his throne, his seat, he seated at the Father's right hand. Now look at the other part of the picture. The devil, Satan, what's he doing? We're told that he gives to the beast in contrast to the lamb. The lamb in the throne, the beast in another throne. The the dragon gave him his power. Satan, the devil, gives the beast his power. And he gives him his seat. And he gives him great authority. Now do you see what, you see the fuller picture. You see what's going to happen. There's going to be this great conflict. Two thrones. Two powers. Two seats. The beast opposed to the lamb. The beast throne opposed to the throne of the lamb. The beast power in opposition to the power of the risen glorified Christ. Satan in opposition to the Christ of God. The great conflict between these two thrones and between these two powers. And when is it happening? Verse 4 of chapter 13. They worship the dragon which gave power unto the beast. Two forms of worship now. Two objects of worship. We've been reading up until now of the worship that takes place in heaven. The worship of the Lamb in the midst of the throne and so on. And it is very interesting. We may come back to this in a moment. Just go back to the chapter 4 and chapter 5 of Revelation. And what we see is very interesting. And remember, 1980, the different things that occurred in the same period. Here we have John telling us of the worship in heaven around the throne. And it begins in chapter 8, or chapter 4 rather, verse 8. Remember the four beasts that were around the throne, the four living creatures, verse 8 of chapter 4. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within And they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. Now these beasts are nearest to the throne. They are the creatures nearest to the throne. And they are engaged in worshipping 
the occupant of the throne. Verse 9, when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat in the throne, which liveth forever and ever, what happens then? The four and twenty elders representing the redeemed church fall down before him. See what's happening? Going out from the living creatures, we move out. The worship of the living creatures affects the elders, the four and twenty elders, and they join in and they are saying the same things. They are offering the same worship. They are expressing themselves in the same way. The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat in the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before uh, the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power and so on. But it doesn't end there. When we go over to chapter 5, we move then from the living creatures and out then to the elders, and we move further. Here's the one that is taken the book with the seven seals to open it, the glorious Redeemer. And what do we read in uh, verse 9? Those who were around the throne, verse 8, to get the connection, the four beasts and four and twenty elders fell down before the Lamb. And uh, they, verse 9, sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy. And then what happens, verse 11, And I beheld, and I heard the voice of many angels round about the throne and the beasts and the elders. Now you've got the beasts and the elders joining in. Now the angels join in around the throne and the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands. This Glorious, holy, heavenly worship is spreading outward from the throne. The four, the four living creatures, then the elders, then the angels, and then when we come down to verse 13, and every creature which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth, and such as are in the sea, and all them that are in them, heard I saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne, and unto the Lamb forever and ever. And the four beasts said, Amen. See what, see what's happened? The worship has moved outward further and further, like if you threw a stone into the water, the ripples keep going further out. And that's the ripples of this holy, reverent worship are spreading from the throne outwardly and ever increasing in the volume of this worship. 
Now that is the scene that John sees. It's as though he was seeing the fulfillment of the glorious promise of that day when the knowledge of the Lord's glory would fill the earth. It begins, the exalted Redeemer is being praised and honored and glorified. And it spreads right out until there are thousands and tens of thousands of angels and heavenly creatures And then the earth and the sea, the whole of creation, joins in the glorious worship. But that's one side of the picture. John has to write to the seven churches and tell them of something else. That though they are given this glorious hope, they are going to meet with fearful Opposition. And look at what they are opposed to and what shall oppose them. The dragon, the devil, gives his seat, his throne to this beast. And he gives power to this beast. And what did Jesus tell his disciples they were to do? They were to tarry at Jerusalem until they would be endued with power from on high. What does the devil, the serpent, do here? He empowers this beast who's on his throne On his seat, he empowers him with a satanic spirit, with satanic power. And furthermore, this power is real. And this power is effective. Go back to chapter 13. I saw one of the heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. What happened to Christ? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He could show to his disciples and show to Thomas, Behold my feet and my hands, the proof that I've been wounded, the proof that I've been crucified, but he rose again. Look at this beast. He has received a wound and to death, as it were, and the deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast. They reject the crucified Christ. They reject the risen Christ. But they worship this beast who has been wounded to death, 
and has been revived. What else? We read, all the world wandered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power to the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Now go back with me to the book of Exodus, to chapter 15. What do we see there is the testimony of Moses and the people of God. In chapter 15 of Exodus, verse 11, what does it say? Who is like unto thee, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like thee, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Now you have several testimonies like this throughout the Old Testament regarding uh, God himself, the person of God. Who is like unto thee? In the Psalm 35, the psalmist says, All my bones, all my being uh, declares, Who is like unto thee? Uh, verse 10, all my bones shall say, Lord, who is like unto thee? Again, in the psalm we sang from earlier, Psalm 71, same words are repeated. See what's happening? I think the church needs to waken up today. I think we imagine to ourselves, well, we can expect a little skirmish now and again between a godless world and the church of Jesus Christ. What John is writing to the churches is to inform them that the serpent, the devil, is in deadly earnest. He is earnest in his opposition, in his intents, in his purposes against Christ's church and the witness of the gospel. Going back to chapter 13, what are they saying? Are they saying, who is like unto the Lord? Who is like unto thee? No, no. Who, verse 4, is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And there was given unto him a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies. And power was given unto him to continue forty and two months, the same period that the two witnesses are prophesying and witnessing on behalf of the truth. So it is little wonder that in chapter 11 we read of the hatred, uh, those who were on the earth, the message of these witnesses tormented them because it is just 
so opposite, so opposed. You have the redeemed church. What are they saying? Who is like unto thee, O Lord? What do we have the Gentiles, the ungodly, who are treading underfoot the city for forty and two months, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Jesus is saying, All power is given unto me. The beast. What are they saying? Who can make war with him? He's invincible, this beast. Because he is uh, empowered by the forces of hell itself. I don't think that many in the professing church have wakened up to what John was to write to the churches, the seven churches, and then he he that hath an ear, let him hear. Let him hear this. Listen to this. That the day will come, the things that must surely come to pass, when they will be worshipping in blasphemy. We're told, there was given unto him a mouth speaking great blasphemies. And they worship him. What did the Pharisees and the scribes, what did they say about Jesus Christ as grounds for rejecting him? Thou speakest blasphemies. You see what we're, the picture that is being painted here for us. You see what the seven churches and the church in general was to prepare for. You see what uh, in chapter 11, when the angel says to John, I will give power unto my two witnesses because the beast will have power and he will have it from the dragon, from the devil. But I will give power to my witnesses and they shall prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. They will prophesy with mourning and with laments because the day will be a dark day. These are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before uh, the God of the earth. And all you have to do is go back because Scripture would interpret Scripture and interpret the visions for John. In Zechariah, you have uh, there in the chapter 4, you have uh, the two olive uh, trees. Verse 3 of Zechariah 4, the two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other upon the left side thereof. 
But what did the angel say to John? These two witnesses. They be the two olive trees. Where was John going to find out the, find these two olive trees? Where were they? What would John do? He'd go back to Zechariah, find out about these two olive trees and the candlestick. Now we haven't time to go any further into it presently, but you can see the picture that John is painting. And uh, these things are to be read, and we're told there is a blessing promised to him that reads them. It seems to me we don't even read them, never mind understand them. But it is clear that there is a real war, a real spiritual war, satanic power engaged against heavenly authority. And the church is to witness in the midst of all that. That's our duty. And we can't effectively witness if we're ignorant of what the conditions are under which we are to witness. My witnesses, there are several things that we need to note about them. My witnesses, appointed by me. My witnesses, chosen by me. But we shall have to leave that uh, until another time, and we trust that we're seeing the church opposed by these mighty powers. And the only way the church can survive is by the power that God gives, the power of his grace, the power of his spirit to withstand that opposition. And if we don't know Christ, then we cannot experience that power to keep and that power to sustain the witness of which John writes, but we shall leave it there. May the Lord bless his word. Let us pray. O most holy and eternal God, we rejoice that we have thy holy word to read and to sing. God in the midst of her doth dwell. Nothing shall her remove. We rejoice that thy church is down through the ages, been able to sing, God is our refuge and our strength in streets, a present deed. Therefore, though the earth remove, we will not be afraid. May thy people then be taking encouragement to stand against the wiles of the wicked one, to put on the whole armor of God, that they might stand in an evil day, and having done all to stand, blesses with uh, insight into thy truth. May we arm ourselves with the shield of faith and with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Blesses, pardon us, receive us now for Christ's sake. Amen.